the last time I saw you was in 2018 when you won the award for the Lifetime Achievement at the Industry Summit. That was a special day, special honor, and so we're glad you were able to make it back and join us this afternoon. Thank you, Ray. Again, it's Lifetime Achievement Award, but I, I still have some more life to go, so <laughs> I don't uh, need to win a second award. I've, I've won some nice awards, but I'm a lifer for this uh, industry. You know, it's, it's interesting because Ted would say, you're an icon, you're a legend. I, I like to modernize that a little bit and I'd call you a game changer because basically that's what you did back in the early 80s. And, you know, what I like to find out a little bit more about, obviously, take a little bit of a journey. I know you were born in the Midwest. I know that you you were an avid collector. I also know that Roberto Clemente is your favorite player. But when you got to the point when you were you're in college uh, as an adjunct professor, give us a little background in terms of what your thinking was. But you were thinking in, in terms of statistics. That was your major as a statistician. But you were thinking in terms of collecting and also with pricing and all that. Give us a little background in terms of where were you at that time and how did you think? I think I've always, from growing up in a family, a larger family, I've always had entrepreneurial instincts. I don't know that I wouldn't say I'm a serial entrepreneur, but I, when I saw an opportunity, I thought, this is something I can do. And basically, when you go back all the way to those days, it was the Wild West. There really was very little organization or certainly no regulation. And there was a big gap between those who knew what cards were going for and those who didn't. And it was a, it was an impediment when people came into the hobby, which is the greatest hobby of all time. They, they just didn't know how to get started. And so the price guides that, that I got rolling on in actually in, in, uh, in 76 was the first, that's 1976. It seems like a long time ago, just getting the ball rolling to let people know that some cards are worth more than others. And if you get taken advantage of, you, you leave and don't come back. And so I'd been a collector. I'd been a dealer. I'd organized a collecting club. I'd organized card show. I'd been a show promoter. So I'd done all the different things. So I thought, can I try to bring something together that would put everybody on an equal footing? And so that was my attempt. That's funny because when I, when I was growing up, it was all about uh, card flipping, lean, leaners. And then I was born in New York, so I, I collected a lot of the Yankees. But we held on to the Mickey Mantles and the, the Whitey Fords only because we knew they were popular players. Not that we knew that there was a value to them. There was no dollar value to them back there, but they were good trade value. And I'd imagine that's the way it was back when you were there. It, it wasn't so much trading on, you know, uh, numbers, but it was more like uh, more trading than, 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 than buying or selling. Is that- very, very much. And, and basically the trading, if you're trading within a set, within like cards, it's you don't need a price guide for that. If you're trading five guys you need for five guys I need and some are stars, some are uh, whatever. But I wouldn't trade my Roberto Clemente's. I wasn't flipping my Roberto Clemente's, but I didn't have any sense that when I'm a nine-year-old kid that they had any exceptional value other than to me. You became an adjunct professor, and, and you had this idea of you were actually giving away what soon would be price guides information away for free. And then I guess from a business question I'd have, with, at that point, you've got a pretty comfortable job. You've got tenure that, that could be coming soon. You had summers off, but yet you, you decided to take you know this leap and get into the, well, what's soon to be the Beckett publications. What was that like for you in terms of making that decision? And then right after the first publication left the door, that had to be daunting for you at some point. One of the things I like about these interviews and with you, Ray, because we've crossed paths many times for many years, but I get a different express question from each person. And I never really thought about this until you just mentioned it. And basically, yeah, I actually got tenure early. So I had tenure. I had essentially a lifetime professor job. 
And I didn't. And then I, but again, I, I thought, gee, that was demotivating to me because I thought, gee, I, what do I do next? I'd done the, when you talk about publishing price guides for free back in the 70s, I was doing scholarly articles that were for free as well. So I did enough publishing in my uh, field of statistics in the journals of the day to get tenure early. Until you just mentioned, I've never realized that one of the reasons I got tenure early, and, that, and I'm just thinking back on this because of statute of limitations, I think they were worried about losing me because I'd, I'd already done these, I'd done enough articles to get tenure, and I, but then I'd been doing this baseball card stuff on the side and all the dean whom I played golf with and, and the other uh, decision makers at the university thought, let's, I, I think deep, I had a good resume for tenure, but they actually gave me tenure early. It's voted in and all that stuff, but I got it early and I'm thinking now, Maybe I wasn't, it wasn't that I was so great a statistician. It was that I was doing this stuff on the side that they could see that I think they were trying to lock me in and it didn't do any good, but I, I had great friends there. Bowling Green was a fabulous place to have a base of operations. I've been in Texas now for 40 years and that's my home. And again, that was part of it. But being a tenured professor, yeah, that's cool because I love, you know, I had grad students. I had uh, undergraduate it was uh, my statistics courses. I just did sports examples for all the test problems and the lecture examples. So I was having a great time. How did you transition, though? Did you just you know stop cold turkey and then get into the business no, side? No, I, I was uh, again. I have entrepreneurial thinking, but I'm probably more risk averse than the average entrepreneur. And so when I moved back down to Dallas, I'd already done the first few uh, price guide books that were annual, but I hadn't done any monthly stuff. And so I came down to Dallas and I actually took a sabbatical from my tenured professorship and worked for a consulting firm where I did full-time expert witnessing, which was more lucrative, a lot of travel, uh, a lot of hours, still allowed me to maintain one foot in the collecting. And then the collect, the card collecting just was getting more and more popular. And so in 84, I launched the magazines and then I really had to cut back on the other consulting. It's just that everybody knows it's history now that it, I just had a real tiger by the tail and, and then as the years went by, I got some fabulous teammates who really helped us get to heights that I never realized we would get to. But to your credit, you didn't have the Internet. You didn't have social media. You didn't have influencers helping you with that product introduction. I got my great teammates as soon as I could. <laughs> I needed to get some money first, Ray. I was a bootstrapper, and so I was burning my candle at both ends. And But some of the people that came along really took took things to like i said to new heights very blessed to and, and some of them are at the conference here one big happy family and so you published the first one and what are some of the, what are some of the highlights what are some maybe the special issues or the special moments that you had like during those first few years some of the key things that came up i think the very first most people say when you're an entrepreneur the the most important thing is to get started <laughs> so right. getting started in the uh, first issue was november of 84 that was a really big deal. And, and pretty quickly, I added uh, a few employees, but it didn't make any money for a couple of years. And I just knew it would, I didn't think it would be lucrative, but I thought it, I shouldn't lose money on this. I to, and the hobby was growing. But the next big decision was deciding to start a, ba a football magazine, not add football to the baseball magazine. And then, of course, that meant we were going to have a basketball magazine and a hockey magazine. And that turned out to be that those were really big uh, decisions that worked out really well because the basketball, football, baseball, hockey, everybody didn't collect everything. They could get what they wanted to. And then the next big moment probably was starting the grading, was starting BGS. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was, I'm curious in terms of when you introduced this, um, was it well received by the hobby or was it something that's, that grew on them or how did you have to deal with that? Nobody liked it until they saw it. 
the dealer said, you shouldn't do this. It's not going to work. It's not good. It's impossible. It's not going to be any good. Don't waste your time. And I said, just you know, give it a shot. And so I didn't have a lot of criticism after it came out because I, like I said, we're really, we're pretty exhaustive. I was pretty, I was very active in the industry. So I knew what the prices were. Plus I got a lot of survey feedback from all around the country. So yeah, I, I think once it got out, then they couldn't hate something that they could hold in their hand and say, Hey, this is, this is helpful. One of the biggest assets was that you were a collector yourself, and I'm sure you attended a number of shows back then. One of the questions I have as, as we move forward was with the Nationals. Do you have, a, can you tell us like one of your favorite Nationals or maybe a favorite story from a National? I've been to every single one, and so there's probably a story for each one. I'm, I'm trying to deal with that in my podcast because it's it would take up uh, the rest of today, but I've segmented. But clearly the first one was a major contribution that the guys in LA, Gavin Riley, especially who doesn't get enough credit and, and Mike Burkus, those guys were visionary. And I was there at that first one. It was not a national in the way we see it now, but it, it had people from all around the country and it was a big show, but it's, it was one tenth what it is now, but they got it off the ground. And then I guess the other one, Rich and I were just talking about this. The 91 national Anaheim was mm-hmm. so unbelievable. In, in its scope and the, the just how huge it was, that was amazing. Th- those would be two right there. And th- then my favorite national will be the next one. That's what I want to say. I'm hopeful. I think a lot of people are hoping for the next national, that's for sure. It'd be, it'd be nice to get back to that. Yeah, and, and as far as your collecting goes, at that time, what were you collecting? Were you collecting individual cards, sets, memorabilia? I editorialize about this, that, that you shouldn't blindly follow the herd, but I certainly followed the herd in the 70s. I, everybody was uh, trying to, everybody had a want list. Well, not everybody, but almost everybody had a want list. And you were trying to complete the older sets, all the sets in the 50s, the 40s. You, you, you go back to whatever you thought was relevant. And so I did that. And when I got finished with all that, I made the quote unquote mistake of trying to get the cards autographed, which now turns out not to have been a mistake. But I, I, I stopped that. At, at some point, because when I started doing these price guides, it just, I just didn't have time to be a, I almost didn't even have time to be a collector. I certainly didn't have time to be a dealer. And so I really quit selling cards. And the only cards I really bought were just type cards that I wanted to show in the almanacs and the annual price guides to keep up with it. But so my collecting took a backseat, but I love collecting. I love having cards. And so I've got a wall of fame, as you can see. And so I'm trying to be a little more selective. I'm trying to do quality over quantity. I'd like to get your take on the uh, the current hobby situation or, or current hobby market. I had some guests on this morning or this afternoon, Josh Luber, Jason Coons, and Ken Golden. We talked about the surge in the uh, the modern trading card market. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it didn't surprise me that these guys are extremely optimistic going forward. And that was what we were trying to find out. What's, today is great. What's going to happen in five years? And knowing what you know about like the price points that, the, that these cards are coming in, signed, unsigned, and all that, what's your take in, in terms of where we are and then – What's the future? What's the future entail for us? Ray, I can be very bullish on the hobby, capital H hobby, that I think we're going to have. I think there are people that have come into the industry and they brought fat wallets and they're really enjoying themselves. But just because I'm bullish on the hobby in the large sense doesn't mean there aren't going to be things within the hobby that have an ebb and flow. And there's going to be some, there already are, there's some corrections. The good thing is there's so many alternatives. If you love sports, if you love cards, if you love memorabilia, and one thing is perceived to be priced, gosh, that's pricey. There's alternatives. This guy, this other guy is not as expensive. Maybe I'll go for him. Or, gee, baseball's getting expensive. 
What about soccer? What about golf? So there's all these kind of uh, comparative analyses that just suggest that I love this hobby. I want to be involved. And when something gets really expensive, people think maybe I won't buy that. I'm, I, I can't afford that anymore, but I can go over and get this other thing. So there's lots of collectors out there that don't collect, that don't collect the, the cream of the cream. 